Hello, everyone. Great to see you, and so appreciate Emmanuel filling in for me last week. Uh, got back Saturday night from our two-week-plus uh, trip to Israel and Turkey, and initially I thought, you know, it always looks real good when you're looking at a calendar months in advance. Oh, yeah, I could do that. But boy, I was just beat. So, so appreciate the help and uh, the grace there. This week in the news, I read where there was a piece of art hanging in a gallery that had been hanging in various galleries for the past 75 years by the abstract Dutch painter Piet Mondrian. It's been hanging in various galleries, and it's titled New York. But as with most abstract art, they didn't realize that it, the thing had been hanging upside down <laughs> for 75 years. <laughs> On the back of those things, you need, it needs to be this way up, you know. They had no idea it was hanging. And I saw a picture of this thing, and uh, it could have been hanging any direction. It could have been hanging sideways, and it wouldn't have looked any different. But I read that, and I thought, you know, when the creator of the art isn't around, the artist, you know, had, has long since passed away. When the creator of the art isn't around to say which way is up, and the image seems sort of abstract, uh, how can we know? There's no way to know. And abstract art, for the most part, looks just as good upside down. But I saw that and thought, you know, we need the creator, the intender of something, that if he doesn't say this way is up, then all of a sudden it's, we're just left to whatever gallery wants to hang it, and they'll, they'll stick it upside down. And here's the thing, we'll have no clue that it's upside down. Well, that illustration probably has an obvious application, but let's, let me give you another one that's not, maybe not quite so obvious, at least initially. Um, years ago, we were driving, our family was driving in a van, our van, and our speedometer had recently broken took the van in to the Honda place, and they wanted $600 to fix that speedometer. I thought, you know what? I don't need a speedometer. <laughs> no one knows it's broken. You know, obviously, when the inspection rolls around, you're going to have to pony up and pay for it, but that was a while away. I thought, you know what? Christmas is coming up. We're just going to hang on to that 600 bucks. So didn't get it fixed. And it was a pretty easy solution. You know, you just go the speed of the cars around you. <laughs> they go fast, you go fast. They go slow, you go slow. You just kind of mingle with the crowd, and, you know, if you see a policeman, of course you're going to slow down, because even when you're going the speed limit, you just naturally slam your brakes on when you see a policeman. So it worked until it was Christmas Day or Christmas Eve or something, and there was, like, nobody on the road. And our family was traveling to East Texas without our speedometer working. So we're cruising along. All of a sudden, I see red lights behind me, and it wasn't Santa Claus. He pulled us over and said I was going seven miles over the posted speed. I told him our speedometer's broken. He says, get it fixed, because you need to know what speed you're going. So, again... How do you know when the painting's hanging upside down? How do you know 
when you're going over the posted speed. If you don't have a gauge to say this way is up, if you don't have a speedometer to say this fast and no faster, what are you left with? You're left with the opinion of the gallery, this way is up. You're left with the traffic around you that goes this fast. And by the way, most people speed. <laughs> because uh, we live on a place that is ridiculously requiring 50 miles an hour right now on a portion of 380, uh, Highway 380, and it's just, I can remember going 70 legally on 380, and now we're going 50. So anyway, I'm not going to get into that because I'll get bitter. <laughs> but people speed because I look down, I'm going 50, and people are just by me. People um, don't use their gauge a lot of times. What happens when everybody is speeding, though? Does that change the law? Not at all. Not at all. Well, in the same way, we can think that God accepts us because even though we're not perfect, we're kind of keeping up with everybody else. They go slow, we go slow. They go fast, we go fast. We're mixing in with the status quo of our spiritual lives and our piety. But does that change the law? Does that change God's standard? Obviously, we're not perfect, but at least we're not as bad as others. I mean, I'm bad, but I'm not, like, that bad. <laughs> Rex, I know you were looking down, but I was pointing right at you, my friend. <laughs> How do we know if we're accepted by God? It can't be by looking around. Because you can always find somebody far, farther down the pike than you. Somebody's going faster than you. You feel like you've got to run faster. Somebody's going slower than you, that's fine. But faster. Is it even possible to know that we're accepted by God? It absolutely is. Let's turn to the book of, are you ready? Leviticus. That's about most of the, the response I get when I mentioned. Where are we going next? I say Leviticus. There's almost always an echo. Leviticus? In fact, I remember some time ago when I told Harry, he said, what are you thinking about next? I think I'm about Leviticus. Leviticus? <laughs> yes, Leviticus. It's a book that you've probably read through because you had to in some Bible reading program. But often, like Chuck was saying about Obadiah, we scratch our heads at some of these Old Testament books because we sort of feel like, what's the point? I mean, Leviticus is for many Bible readers as unknown and as untraveled as the wilderness in which it was written. And why not? Who cares about ancient laws that are no longer in effect under the New Covenant? Who cares about sacrifices no longer needed? Who cares about diet codes that are no longer kosher? Consequently, most of us as Christians, see nothing profitable in studying Leviticus. Philip Yancey's brother was a bit of a hoot. He um, went to Bible college, and he was in Bible college, and everyone would have their life verse. You know, what's your life verse? And you'd rattle off something from Ephesians or Romans or Psalms or something noble. But whenever he was asked, what's your life verse, he would say, First Chronicles 26.18, and then he would quote it. And this is First Chronicles twenty six eighteen, at Parbar westward four at the causeway and two at the Parbar. 
<laughs> Amen. Exactly. Other times he would quote Psalm 137 verse 9, which reads, Happy shall be he that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the rocks. And Yancey said that his brother had ingeniously revealed two major reasons we don't read the Old Testament. First of all, it doesn't make sense sometimes, and the parts that do make sense we don't like. But remember these words. Chuck uh, paraphrased them in our service. I'll read what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16. Just listen. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Paul had not yet completed his contribution to the um, New Testament, though with 2 Timothy he was right on the edge of his contribution, but we still had more to come by the Apostle John. New Testament wasn't done yet. What was he talking about? He was talking about the Old Testament. All Scripture, all Old Testament Scripture is profitable. In fact, in 1 Timothy he writes, the law is profitable if we use it, uh, how does he phrase it, how does he phrase it, uh, if we use it well, if we use it lawfully, that's what he says. It's, help, it's profitable if we use it lawfully. Even Leviticus. Remember after Jesus' resurrection, he was walking to Emmaus, and two d- disciples didn't know it was Jesus, and they began talking. And then, you know, they said, well, we're sort of down about the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth, we thought he was going to be the Messiah. And then Luke says, beginning with Moses, he explained what was written in all the law and the prophets concerning himself. Beginning with Moses, meaning Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So when we read Leviticus, we need to see Christ because Christ is there. Now, we're not going to make Leviticus walk on all fours, and I promise you we're not going to go verse by verse through this book, but we are going to do a survey of it, of much of it, because much of it is a wonderful portrait, a a wonderful picture of our Savior, including what we'll look at today. So look right at verse 1, and let's dive into a book that I believe you will enjoy. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, dot, 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 and we'll pause there for a second. I've got the New American Standard here in front of me, and it begins with the word, then the Lord called to Moses. If you have the NIV, the NLT, the ESV, or perhaps another modern translation, it may just begin with the Lord called to Moses. But the original Hebrew actually has a conjunction before that. And uh, literally, it's uh, a construction in Hebrew that refers to a conjunction showing a consecutive action. It really literally should be translated, and then the Lord called to Moses. Why is that significant? If you look back one chapter, the end of Exodus, chapter 40, look at verse 17. It says, now in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Look down at verse 34. Then, or literally, and then, the Lord covered the tent of meeting, 
The, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now again, Leviticus 1, verse 1. And then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. The progress there is intended to get our attention. And then begins the book of Leviticus, meaning the book of Leviticus is um, follows right up with, Levitic, with uh, Exodus. There's no you know, separate volume, as it were, but it, it is one continual flow of story. In fact, if we were to turn back to the book, beginning of the book of Exodus, you'll see Moses did the same thing with the end of Genesis. There is this connection and this flow that's intended to go through. And this flow is basically they put up the tabernacle at God's command so that God could dwell among them. And then God filled the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord was there. Now Leviticus begins saying, here's what you do with this tabernacle. Here's what you do with God in your presence. Why did we build this tent that we're carting around everywhere? Leviticus, the title, obviously relates to the Levites. This is the, it's a manual for priests and it was a way for a people who had been redeemed from Egypt to now live in fellowship with God. Ver, look at verse 2. Here's what the Lord said. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd. So pause there. The sacrifices begin with the burnt offering. The Hebrew word for burnt offering is hola. Now, we all know that in Spanish is hello, but it's pronounced the exact same way. It has nothing to do with hello. Hola uh, is we get our word holocaust from it. We get our word whole from it. It means burnt whole. It is an, an offering that was completely burnt. I mean, you didn't eat any of it. You put it there, and you let it go from raw to cook just right to, to well done to burnt, burnt whole. It was completely given to God. Sacrifices. You know, modern readers a lot of times will look critically at our Old Testament, especially as we get into these, these sacrifices. seems a little barba barbaric until you realize it was God's idea. Think about it this way. When you don't want sugar, but you do want sweet, what do you use? A substitute, right? When you don't want the menu item as it is on the menu, what do you request? A substitute. When the school district calls and the teacher can't make it? A substitute. Who does the coach put in when a player can't take it? Substitute. What does a pharmacist prescribe? when you don't want to pay full retail on what's prescribed, a substitute. Substitution is a way of life for us. When you think about um, somebody in dire straits, a substitute vehicle, an ambulance, gets us there faster. A, um, an actor has a stand-in or a stunt double. That's a substitute to take their place. A team puts in a pinch hitter a substitute. Sometimes we use a substitute when there's an, an absence in our lives, like a surrogate father or even a voter's proxy. 
or when your Sunday school teacher cancels at the last moment and doesn't show up. <laughs> Substitute. In every case, when something is required and you can't meet the demand, a substitute is our only option. Genesis, the book of Genesis, reveals in its first few chapters that God created humanity holy. He created them good. But it doesn't take but a couple of chapters for sin to enter the picture. Adam and Eve sinned immediately, instinctively. They knew that they were separate from God, that their sin separated them from a holy God. And so what did they do? They tried to cover that sin, or what represented that sin, their nakedness to them. But it wasn't sufficient to cover them, because when God showed up walking in the garden, they still hid themselves, even though they had covered themselves. They knew they needed more. They needed a sacrifice. They, had, uh, they covered themselves with fig leaves, not skins, and then God killed an animal, a death on their behalf, a substitute an animal sacrifice. God invented animal sacrifice. God invented substitutionary death on behalf of one another. So how, do I, how can we stand before a holy God who requires perfection when we're not perfect? Substitution. That's the only way it can happen. It's our only option, and it was God's idea. The burnt offering is discussed here in this chapter on three different levels. We won't read all the verses because it's pretty repetitive, but just look with me at several. Uh, Le- Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3 says, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. Look at verse 10. But if his offering is from the flock or of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. Verse 14. But if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from the young pigeons. What's the point of these three different types of offerings, these three levels of offerings? Well, first of all, notice they had to be perfect especially from the herd and the flock. You didn't offer God your second best. Imagine if uh, the governor or the president or Chuck or someone you know, of notoriety says, I'm going to come have dinner with you. You wouldn't serve them yesterday's leftover meatloaf. You would. You'd do it upright. You'd give the very best. This is the way it was with God. You don't serve God an imperfect sacrifice. You don't offer to him an imperfect sacrifice. Plus, The sacrifice was to be male. Now, why does that matter? It's simply a financial thing. Those of you who are involved with uh, reproducing cattle or know about that know that it only takes one bull to service all these other cows. Uh, The male was very valuable in that sense, especially if it was a perfect male. It could reproduce that perfection. And so it was a very valuable sacrifice. You know, we tend to think about our tithes and offerings, we often call them. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it's really easy just to give money. I mean, I know money doesn't grow on trees, but, you know, to write a check or on the computer, you're just going to do a few clicks and you have (coughs) sacrificed. 
but it didn't feel like sacrifice, especially if you're in the habit of giving. It's just part of your routine. And after a while, as crazy as it sounds, you don't miss it. But when you put that money, whatever that amount is, let's say, I don't know, let's say it's $500. I don't know what what you give, and that's totally irrelevant. But let's just say for the point of my illustration, it's $500. That's a pretty decent car payment. You could have a pretty nice car sitting in your driveway if you didn't give to God that $500. Now, all of a sudden, that sacrifice can mean more when you realize, if I didn't give to the Lord this money, I would, could do this with that. Now, don't go too far with that. You may think, yeah, I'm going to quit giving. I need a new car. No, the point is, sometimes it helps to put something tangible with an intangible amount for us. For a person in Moses' day to give a male, a young male from the flock, uh, or a bull, or something like this, this was major money, because this represented someone who could pass on this perfection to multiple generations. It was a genuine sacrifice to God. Now, back to our initial question. How do you know if you're accepted by God? How do you know? How do you know which way to do the picture? How do you know what speed to go on the highway? How do you as a Christian know that you're accepted by God when you got all these other people that seem to be doing so much better than you? Verse 3, once again, gives us the purpose for the burnt offering. The end of verse 3 says that, here's the purpose, he may be accepted before the Lord. The purpose of this offering was so that the offerer or the worshiper would know that they are accepted. And the three different types of offerings, whether you do it from the herd or whether you do it from the flock or whether you do it of birds, this represented three different economic levels. Not everyone can afford, you know, a bull from the herd. But a bird, you could afford a bird. Every different economic level. In other words, no one based on your financial status, was to be rejected from coming to God. Everyone had access to the Lord, regardless of your financial status. I read about a woman named Susan, and I'll just leave the details as vague as I can, who told a friend of hers that uh, her husband didn't measure up, and she was actively looking for other men to meet her needs for intimacy. Susan also mentioned to to her friend that she rose early every day to spend an hour alone with the Father. And the friend said, in your meetings with the Father, do moral issues ever come up that might influence this pending separation from your husband? And Susan said, now I'll quote what she said, that sounds like the response of a white Anglo-Saxon male. The Father and I are into relationship, not morality. Relationship means being wholly supportive and standing alongside me, not judging me. Now, in the context of church where we're all spiritual, we want to shake our head at Susan's response, but in reality, apart from Christ, that's exactly where we are. We want God to just say yes to our lives. We don't want it to change. We don't want uh, any requirement of us, you know, to meet up with his standard. We want God to just approve our standard. 
And much of her response comes from her own common sense. This is why uh, I, I'm, I find it humorous sometimes with the songs that we teach our kids. Praise him, praise him, all ye little children. God will judge your sin. We don't sing that, do we? No, God is love. God is love. And he is love. And it's perfectly right that we teach that to our kids. But we also need to remind our kids and ourselves that he's love, but that isn't his only attribute. He's also just. And someone who is uh, 100% grace and 100% justice, how do you do that? How do you balance that? How can you have integrity as a God of grace and as a God of justice dealing with anybody? With you and me, it's usually one or the other. We either have to go, well, we're going to go justice on this one, or eh, we're just going to go grace on this one. God did both at the cross. That's how God did it, to where God's justice was fully met on our sin, on your sin and my sin, that all the sins that we ever have committed and will commit were placed on God's Son, Jesus. And Jesus died as our burnt offering. He was completely consumed for our sin. That's justice, a substitute, just like in Leviticus. He was our substitute. But grace also plays into the picture because God says now, because of the substitution, you don't have to die. Someone has fully, just fully died for your sin. You can have forgiveness of sin by believing in me and my provision for you. This is what Leviticus offered the worshiper, that through the burnt offering, which was the foundational offering of all offerings, every, every offering that happened, the burnt offering happened, and then you'd usually pile on top of that you know, other, other offerings, which we'll see in the weeks to come. The cross of Christ provided a way. On uh, my recent tour to the Bible lands, I was in Turkey and ran across, uh, crossed paths with a Muslim woman. We happened to get on the topic of uh, forgiveness. And I asked her how she knew she was forgiven in her religion. And she didn't, she kind of paused with that question. It's, it's almost as if she hadn't really thought about that or certainly didn't have a ready-made answer. And much of her response came from her perspective of her own common sense. I mean, occasionally she would mention the Quran and a verse here and a verse there, but really it sort of stemmed from, here's how I see it from her perspective. And it basically boiled down to, to good works, being a good person. And I told her, I said, you know, good works are great, but what are you going to do with your sin? Because God is holy, and he can't tolerate sin in his presence. What are you going to do with your sin? It doesn't go away by itself. All the good works in the world can't erase or cover the fact that we are sinners. On another occasion, I read about how the Muslims have an annual pilgrimage to Mecca, which you're probably aware of, and if you can afford it, you're required to attend at least once in your life as part of your pilgrimage, spiritual pilgrimage and salvation. They also sacrifice animals in memorial of Abraham. They believe he sacrificed Ishmael, not Isaac. 
And I read of one 36-year-old Muslim civil engineer who said, quote, I wish that God would accept my pilgrimage and wash my sins away. At the point that this was said, he said he had been there three times, and he still wasn't sure. How many trips does it take to have a confidence if you're basing it on your works? You'll never be confident. You'll never be confident. The purpose of the burnt offering removed all doubt. End of verse 3, that he may be accepted before the Lord. The purpose is that you are accepted before the Lord. And here's how that worked. Look at verse 4. He shall lay his hand upon the head of the burnt offering that he may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that's the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, over the wood which is on the fire that's on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs, he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer up and smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord, a soothing aroma. Notice, first of all, this animal is identified with the worshiper. Pretend you're the person that brings this animal. You walk into the tabernacle with your animal, and you are to put your hand on the head of the animal. This signified that your sins are now being, you know, zapped over into the animal itself, or now that the animal is taking on your sin as a substitute. And then notice, you are to take the life of the animal. It's not the priest's job, it's your job to do. It says, verse 5, he shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And as you watched this animal's lifeblood leave it, and the animal begin to get more and more drowsy and then finally just collapse, and all that blood is there, you, rep, you understand, this is my substitute. This should be my blood. This should be my death. But instead, God has graciously provided a substitute to die on my behalf. It was a visual that we lack today. Um, and it was a, it, it's, it's gruesome. And, but it was so poignant, you can imagine. And the purpose was atonement. Romans chapter 6 tells us that we who believe in Jesus Christ, that when Christ died, spiritually, we died. When Christ was buried, spiritually, we were buried. When Christ rose, spiritually, we rose. That we are identified with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The The whole purpose of it was atonement. Atonement is a 13th century English word meaning at one meant. We are at one now with God. Atonement. It brought you back into fellowship with God. God was free to declare the worshiper forgiven because of what Christ would do one day. Was this worshiper accepted? To emphasize this point, we've got three different verses that mention it. Uh, Look at the end of verse 9. Verse 9 talks about It says, it is a soothing aroma to the Lord. Um, Then look at verse 13. 
verse 13, the end of verse 13. It says, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. Look at the end of verse 17. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. A soothing aroma, a pleasing aroma. It doesn't mean it smelled good. I mean, have you ever smelled anything that's burnt completely up? It doesn't smell good. So it doesn't, it's not a reference to the smell. It's a reference to the result. God smells it in the sense that it is a pleasing aroma and that what it accomplishes is pleasing to God. It means that God was pleased, that there's no sin now between you and God. And you can walk out of that tabernacle knowing, knowing that you are forgiven. God provided a way for the Hebrew to know without a doubt that they had been accepted. Well, all of this leads us to our principle from this, and it's just one for our whole lesson. And it's simply this. God is pleased to accept anyone at any time who comes to him through his prescribed sacrifice. God is pleased to accept anyone at any time who comes to him through his prescribed sacrifice. We're not going to look at it today, but uh, in chapter 6, it emphasizes that for the burnt offering, uh, the fire is never to go out on, on the altar. It's always to stay lit. And that implies continual 24-7 access. God doesn't have drive-through hours. You don't come to the tabernacle just, you know, every other Saturday. That fire is constantly lit. There's continual, always access to God. Now, how do we interpret these Old Testament passages? I think one of our greatest challenges with Leviticus and any Old Testament book is we come to it and on the surface we think, that has nothing to do with my life. But when we realize that there are timeless truths that are inside these passages, timeless truths that we could pull up and hold, like what I just said, God is pleased to accept anyone at any time who comes to him through his prescribed sacrifice. That is as true in the time of Leviticus as it is today, except the object of our faith is different. That is different. So leave Leviticus now and look at the book of Hebrews chapter 10. And let's bring this up to our current walk with God. Sacrifice as a temporary solution was God's idea. But you don't just offer any old sacrifice. I mean, you don't just willy-nilly come and offer any old sacrifice. It has to be the one that God prescribes. Forgiveness of sin is always a gift of God's grace through faith in his sacrifice that he provides apart from any works on our part. But the object of that faith has changed through the years. In the Old Testament, it was animal sacrifices. Today, it's different. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. The author says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have con had consciousness of sins? 
But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, that's capital H, meaning Jesus. When he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Verse 5, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. This is Jesus speaking. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of the burnt offering. I love the way it's phrased right there in verse 1. The law since it has only a shadow of the good things to come. Think about shadows. It's a beautiful, beautiful metaphor. A shadow of something can't take away sins. Uh, The shadow of a hammer can't drive a nail. The shadow of your leg can't kick a ball. And the shadow of the Old Testament sacrifices can't forgive your sins. So why they do it then? Why would God say there's atonement? If now Hebrews is saying, oh yeah, blood and bulls and goats, that doesn't take away sins. Well, Leviticus said it did. What's he talking about? He's talking about what we often refer to as credit. Think about credit. Think about your credit card. You're probably all sitting on one. A credit card. What a handy tool. Isn't it great? Yay, credit cards. We go to the mall or to Amazon or wherever we do our shopping, and we will type in our credit card number, and we get our merchandise. Let's say we go to the mall because it's immediate, and we buy a radio, though nobody buys radios anymore. (laughs) How about a pair of shoes? A pair of shoes, that'd be better. Go to the mall, you buy a pair of shoes, pay for it with your credit card, and you walk out wearing the shoes because we all do, right? Walk out with the shoes we just bought. You haven't paid a cent for those shoes. Not one cent. And yet you own them. They're yours. You benefit from those shoes as much as if you had paid cash. But you haven't paid one red cent. When do you pay? When the bill comes due. When the bill comes due, you pay it in full. And if you don't, you pay a penalty. But that's not what our illustration is. This is what Jesus did. All Old Testament sacrifices, when they were done in faith, they were credited as righteousness. The Old Testament saint, even though they'd never heard of Jesus, had their sins paid for by the blood of Jesus, even though it hadn't happened yet. Why? Because it was credited to them. And when the bill came due, 
When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for all of the sins of the Old Testament. The bill was paid in full. Not only that, it, now we are got credit into the future. All future sins as well are paid for, and that's how we qualify. It's easy for us to look back and say, Jesus died for our, our sins, but think about those in the Old Testament, that you were using a sacrificial system like a credit card, and once Jesus died on the cross, you could cut up that credit card because it was all credited to your account as righteousness. You know, people will say today that to say that Jesus is the only way is arrogant. It's too exclusive. It leaves out too many people. Christianity is arrogant to claim an exclusive way to God. But really, Jesus, uh, Christianity isn't saying anything that hasn't already been said since day one. There's always only been one way to God. That is, God is pleased to accept anyone at any time who comes to him through his prescribed sacrifice. In the Old Testament, it was animals. In the New Testament, now in our era, it is Jesus Christ. But it's only the way that God provides. You try to come to God with any other sacrifice other than the one that he offers, and it will not be accepted. Think about uh, Cain and Abel. Remember, Cain offered a particular sacrifice, Hebrews 11 tells us, but Abel offered it with faith. The sacrifice, you could argue whether it was the sacrifice itself, but it was really faith that made the difference. It's faith that makes the difference. You and I are not made righteous when we believe in Christ. We're declared righteous. That's why we often struggle believing that we're forgiven, because we still sin. We still sin on a regular basis. And when we have the mindset that this way is up on the abstract painting, we're not using what the author said about it. We're going back to our own mindset. When we think, man, I just sinned for the 837th time doing the exact same thing. I can't be a Christian. Wait a minute. Did you become a Christian because you had no sin? Nope. You became a Christian because you believed in Jesus who paid for your sins. We are not saved or kept saved because of our righteous life, but because of Jesus who died for us. Now, one more spot to turn to, if you would, turn back to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. We asked it in an Old Testament context, how did they know they were forgiven? Because uh, God says so in the Word, that they're forgiven as a pleasing sacrifice, pleasing aroma. How do we know that we're forgiven? Romans chapter 5 is the fastest way to get you to Romans chapter 4, verse 25. So look back one verse. Romans 4.25 says, Jesus, he was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Simple verse, but look at the details of it. Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions. Let's flip the phrase around and say it this way. Because of our transgressions, because of our sin, Jesus died on the cross. That's what the first part of this verse says. And we know that well. Jesus died on the cross because of our sins. But now look at the second part of this verse. He was delivered over because of our transgressions and 
was raised because of our justification. In other words, because of our forgiveness. How do we know we're forgiven? Jesus rose from the dead to show that God accepted his payment on our behalf. And my friend, you can't have one without the other. You can't split Romans 4.25 in half. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Boom. But I'm not sure I'm forgiven. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Absolutely. Then you can know that you're forgiven. Because that means God accepted. It was a pleasing sacrifice to the Father, just like the burnt offering. So you see, Leviticus does connect with us. Very much. It gives us some great timeless truths. And the one that's wonderful to start with today is you don't have to wonder if you're accepted by God. If you have accepted Jesus Christ, He has accepted you. Let's pray. Father God, our world does its best to flip the paintings upside down. It does its best to clip the cord to our speedometer where we have no idea what the standard is and we're left to ourselves to try to figure it out. And then Satan creeps in and points back to all the sins that we've committed even since we placed our faith in Christ and does his best to cast doubt and discouragement on our salvation. Thank you, Lord, that you give us a standard. This way is up. Thank you that you give us a gauge by which we can know what the law says. You did that in the Old Testament with the burnt offering, that the one who offered it would know that when it is offered in faith, they were forgiven. We have that same confidence with our Lord Jesus Christ who fulfills, who is the substance behind the shadow of the Old Testament sacrifices. All those point to him and his ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for the wonderful, gracious reminder today from Leviticus chapter 1 that we are accepted before you because you have made provision to make it so. We worship you and thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Wayne. Good to have you back. I've uh, just got an update on John McKenzie's condition. He's going to be in the – they're going to keep him in the hospital a couple of days. He had low sodium as part of this. It was causing his dizziness, so I think he's going to be fine. Just keep praying for him if you would. Lisa's going to be selling tickets for the Christmas party over here. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.